Located in the Central Flyway, Port Aransas, Texas boasts hundreds of native and migrating species with a gorgeous island backdrop. With six sites along the Great Texas Coastal Birding Trail, the island offers up-close vantage points to marvel at the magnificent migrating birds that consider Port A the ideal rest stop. Get your tickets to the Whooping Crane Festival and celebrate their annual return to their wintering habitat. Go to visitportaransas.com birding to plan your visit. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. It has been quite the weather and natural disaster rich summer and one of the more dramatic and troubling examples of that were the expansive wildfires in Hawaii this summer, predominantly on the island of Maui, which, as many birders and bird conservationists know, is the island home to a number of endemic and critically endangered Hawaiian songbirds, notably Akoikoi and Kiwikiu, alternately known as Crested Honey Creeper and Maui Parrot Bill, respectively. As far as I know, and folks can, of course, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but the fires mostly, if not entirely, avoided the forests on the leeward slopes of Haleakala in the east of the island where the birds are found, thankfully. But one critical bird conservation site that was under threat was the Maui Bird Conservation Center, which is the site where a couple bird species, Alala, which is Hawaiian crow, and Akikiki are housed and protected. Alala are extinct in the wild and Akikiki very nearly so. The site hosts about 40 of each, which is a significant percentage of the population of these two species. They are being held in the hopes that they or their descendants can be eventually returned to the wild. But a fire caused by fallen power lines and fueled by the current drought on the island came incredibly close, about 10 or 15 feet, the width of a gravel road from reaching the property and was only prevented by the incredibly quick action taken by Jennifer Pribble, who, armed with two fire extinguishers and a garden hose and eventually the help of a neighbor, kept the fire at bay until firefighters were able to arrive and contain it. This is all documented with video footage from cameras on the property in a recent article in the New York Times. The link is in the notes if you would like to see it. It is truly staggering to think that the futures of these two species effectively came down to the bravery and quick thinking of one person with a fire extinguisher, but that's where the extinction crisis is in Hawaii these days. Hopefully, though, with this act of bravery, there will be better days ahead. But in the meantime... Can we get some sort of medal for Jennifer Pribble? On the show this week, the Feminist Bird Club has made great strides in the last few years, reaching all sorts of people and turning them into birders. These efforts and this strategy inform the new book, Birding for a Better World. I'm joined by one of the book's authors, Sydney Golden Anderson and FBC co-chair and Massachusetts birder, Mekotipa Mighty, to talk about all of that. And it is after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of September 2023. It's not often that we at the American Birding Podcast are capable of accurately looking into our crystal balls and predicting birds, but we sorted it at this time. The last week's episode featured Ted Floyd and me talking about the prospect of vagrant elegant turns, and lo and behold, that same day one shows up in North Carolina and Derrick County, where it is a state-first record. Elegant turn has been detected in increasing numbers in the southeast, largely by birders who are willing to take the time and parse some royal turn flocks and make their own luck. That was the case this time. Congrats 
Daniel Irons, the bird was not refound despite dedicated efforts, which I was a part of, not for nothing, but the excellent photos look to tell the story here. One other first from the end of last month that I'd just forgotten to mention then, Quebec's first record of shiny cowbird was seen in La Pocatière. This appears to be a second record for Canada following a sighting in New Brunswick from the early 90s. The last few days have seen a near eruption of golden-crowned warblers in South Texas, where up to four individuals now. This little skulky warbler has been annual in recent years in Texas with relatively recent records from Louisiana and Colorado as well, suggesting some northward range expansion into the ABA area, likely a result of the two-pronged troubles of climate change and habitat destruction in northern Mexico. And looking to western Alaska, two Baikal teal have been seen on St. Paul Island in the Bering Sea. This highly migratory East Asian waterfowl is one of the rarest species of duck to turn up in the ABA area. Almost all records predictively come from Alaska, and a small handful are scattered across western states in the province of British Columbia. Those are the recent highlights for the full list. Check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org rba. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. One of the more interesting and inspiring movements in the birding community of the last few years has been that of the Feminist Bird Club, a group that started in New York City and has since spread to several chapters in the U.S. and Canada. They champion inclusivity, social justice, and an approach that is comfortable for novices and other folks who had perhaps not felt seen in the birding world before. Some of the leaders of that organization have collaborated on a new book. It is out now. It's called Birding for a Better World, a Guide to Finding Joy and Community in Nature. My guests today are here to talk about the book and the FBC in general. Sydney Golden Anderson is with Molly Adams, one of the authors, and Mekodipa Maiti is one of the co-chairs of the Feminist Bird Club nonprofit. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having us, Nate. It's great to be here. Thank you, Nate. Really great to be here. I'm excited. Yeah, congratulations on the book. It looks beautiful. It's really neat. Um, And uh, I'm excited for you, uh, having written a book myself. It's it's a labor of love to get that whole thing to the finish line. It must be very exciting. Definitely. It was a lot of work. It was about two years um, of ideating and writing and editing and working with artists and doing all of the things. And now it finally lives in the world. And it's very, very exciting. Well, it is beautiful. So how did you both find the Feminist Bird Club, and why did it speak to you? I can start. Um, this is Sydney here. Um, I was living in Chicago when I first learned about and got involved with the Feminist Bird Club. A mentor of mine at the time um, knew about my appreciation for birds and my values of community care. And she recommended that I look into Feminist Bird Club. And I obviously took her up on this advice. And mm-hmm. then in the fall of 2019, I connected with Frances Kane, who is one of the two co-founders of the Chicago chapter of Feminist Bird Club. And then I just started showing up to events. And I can remember that the first event I attended was at a forest preserve in Chicago called Labaw Woods. Um, and after observing birds for a couple of hours in the early morning, um, about 15 or so of us, we we stayed after the event to volunteer with the Friends of the Forest Preserve of Cook County to plant native bird habitat, specifically native shrubs, throughout the park, which just felt like a really special experience. And it was like reciprocity in action, right? Like the birds had given us so much that morning and we were giving back to them. Um, and I just feel so lucky to have found Feminist Bird Club when I did, because just a few short months later, as we all know, the pandemic hit yeah. and essentially all in-person programming was shut down. And it was at that point that Francis and Bridget 
Kiernan, she's the other founder of the Feminist Bird Club Chicago chapter, asked if I wouldn't wanted to join the leadership team. And I was like, enthusiastically, yes, I really want that. Um, and, you know, instead of really like squirreling ourselves away during that period of isolation, the three of us met regularly over Zoom to uh, do a lot of different things. So we organized a bunch of mutual aid fundraisers for our Chicago neighbors. We kept writing newsletters to keep our community activated during a time of civil unrest uh, during the 2020 protests. Mm-hmm. And then we really focused the rest of our attention on strategic planning for the future and the type of chapter that we wanted to be moving forward, especially once we were able to safely gather in person again. Um, And it was really just that kind of intention and love and care that the Chicago chapter demonstrated that drew me in and it blew me away. And it just really made me want to be part of this community for as long as I can. It must have been very satisfying to have that during a time when so many people were isolating and feeling very apart from their community. Oh, it so was. And Francis and Bridget are two of my best friends in the entire world now as a result. And um, I feel just so grateful for them every day. How about you, Megadiba? My journey is a lot more convoluted. Um, uh-huh. In the summer of 2020, as there was a lot of civil unrest happening, um, at the time I was um, on the education committee of the local bird club, Western Massachusetts is actually very white, um, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of birders around. Um, and as a part of that committee, I started leading this event. Well, I'd call it a book club, but I was co-facilitating it. And we were focusing on The Home Place by Dr. Drew Lanham, uh-huh. um, which is an amazing book. And I found that it was really inspiring. And I had a lot to say about it. And I thought it could spark a lot of conversations locally. So part of this was talking about the book, but part of the series of events was just seeing what do we need to do locally um, to include more folks in birding. And through those conversations, the Feminist Bird Club came up um, and a lot of people were like, there is a model for people who've been doing this already. Um, And I reached out to uh, FBC at the time. They were not taking on new chapters. So I co-founded the anti-racist collective of avid birders um, locally. And about a year later, we finally became a feminist bird club chapter. So this is unlike, I think, any other chapter. (laughs) Um, And I know there was a little bit of um, confusion around that. But I just realized that it, it felt very exhausting to be doing that work without more infrastructure, without hearing from others who've been there. Because I just started this, um, And being able to uh, be a part of the Feminist Bird Club for me was to hear about success stories all over the country, all over the world of people who'd been doing this. Um, And it helped me question um, my place and why um, Western Massachusetts is so queer, but I didn't know any other queer birders around here, for Mm -hmm. example. So um, it it really helped me take a step back um, and see how I could fill in the gaps for this kind of space that I would hope to get from a birding community. And did you find people who are sort of in the same place as you, who you were looking for that sort of collective, that sort of community within the birding community? Absolutely. And part of it is being able to start conversations with people who don't typically look like birders. Sure. um, And maybe you won't run into them at the local stakeout, which is how I met a lot of other birders (laughs) around here. exactly right, yeah. Um, and a lot of the time, um, it's through other events where I find out that people are maybe curious about birds, but don't 
didn't think of themselves as birders. So exactly, being able to meet yeah. like-minded people that way has been amazing. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, one of the things that I think is most interesting about the Feminist Bird Club is the way that you have brought in a lot of people who perhaps didn't, as you said, didn't see themselves as birders, but, you know, they're sort of bird curious or bird interested or, or however you want to describe it. And you, you basically provided a home for them. Um, how did you really approach bringing those novice birders sort of into this larger fold and making them confident that they're birders and also, you know, more than that, you know, finding this sort of avenue where birding and social justice sort of intersect in interesting ways? Uh, yeah, thanks, Nate. Logistically speaking, Feminist Bird Club tries to make sure that we have spare binoculars available sure, at yeah. our in-person events to begin with. And then we give brief lessons on how to use them. So we don't want to make any assumptions about the types of equipment that people have. You know, it is surprising how people don't do that at regular bird walks yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Um, so we, we try to have at least a few on hand at every mm -hmm. event. Um, and we try to make sure that everyone at every event, whether that's in person or virtual, knows that it's a safe space for them, especially beginner birders. And mm -hmm. we do that by starting off each event by introducing ourselves and letting folks know that no one person's expertise precludes anyone else's. And that uh, no one person knows everything, right? So, it, you know, in that sense, we're all really learning and growing and learning from one another all the time. And it's okay to make mistakes. And we just really try to like push that message out there. It's just so that folks like really understand that there's no shame in misidentifying a bird. Oh, for sure. None at all. Yeah. Um, and, and it's honestly amazing. And I've heard other feminist bird club leaders reflect this as well, that often, even if someone isn't a total bird nerd yet, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. There's a good chance they'll, know something like equally as cool and like mm -hmm. bring something equally as cool to the table right so maybe yeah. they have knowledge about plants or mm -hmm. mushrooms or they just have a general enthusiasm for being and sharing in nature with other human beings which is like totally infectious yeah um and i guess the point i'm making is that we all have something unique to add and we really aim to make sure that our participants feel welcomed and part of the community regardless of their birding skill level yeah, for sure. I, I really love the way that birding intersects with a lot of other interests uh, that people have, as you say, plants, trees, history, uh, maps, geology, geography, all that stuff can find a little home in birding. Uh, and, you know, it's you so can true. enjoy that in whatever way you like. Yeah. And that enthusiasm is really infectious. That's what I've noticed no a lot doubt. of the time, even if people don't know anything about birds or even if they're uh, really interested in taking this up more seriously like when they see you getting really excited about mm -hmm. a bird like it rubs off um and sydney said all of this so well um so i'll just i guess add to that um when i'm when i'm checking to see if folks need to borrow binoculars i think about my journey and the fact that i've been birding for over 15 years and for a lot of that time I wasn't really using binoculars. Mm -hmm. um, I mm -hmm. I had a camera and I would like zoom in once in a while, but um, I didn't really have mentors and I wasn't really looking at a field guide. A lot of my childhood was spent looking at birds and trying to understand them, looking at their behavior, mm -hmm. um, figuring out how their plumages change in the breeding season um, and, and just that joy of discovery. So when I am distributing binoculars, I also emphasize that you don't need binoculars in order to enjoy birds. There is no one way to bird. Um, yeah. And if there's something that sparks joy for someone else, like we want to, we want to share in that joy. No, I, I couldn't yeah. agree with you more. I really do think that, you know, this, this idea that um, I think a lot of people see 
that everyone else's sort of birding journey needs to reflect their own birding journey. And part of that is because they've, you know, put so much value in that journey. It's been so important to them. But I think it's important. And one of the things that I think Feminist Bird Club does really well is to kind of step outside of that. And as you say, everyone has a, a way to enjoy birds and they're all sort of equally valid and all sorts of, you know, whatever whatever brings you joy is sort of the important thing. And the other thing that I was uh, alluding to before um, which is just thinking about who's not represented mm-hmm. in the room and who's not there and think about why aren't they there. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the time when I'm doing outreach for events, I pretty aggressively go out of my way to reach communities that are underrepresented in birding. So instead mm-hmm. of advertising my events only in like birding forum, I look at like uh, local queer communities. Um, I really got this inspiration from Elise at Philly Queer Birders, but mm-hmm. Philly Queer Birders started... Um, on Lex, which is like a queer dating slash classifieds app. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've, I've started like promoting my events there. Um, and I'll find something really catchy or exciting about this event, um, that I'm organizing. For example, in weird duck season, I'll really make a play on that. <laughs> um, queer folks love, love puns. It's, it's, oh, that's no how doubt. it works. <laughs> and so I'll post about that and about what I'm excited about. Um, and say, if, if you, if you think this could be fun, just join us. It doesn't matter if you're curious about birds or not. Yeah. Um, and so I, I end up reaching a lot of folks who didn't even know they could be excited about birds yeah. or, yeah. I, I think, uh, the sort of earnestness with which birders sort of approach, uh, nature and bird study is really, as you say, infectious. You know, I'm certainly guilty of having, uh, some of a cynical outside when you're kind of working your way through the world. And one of the things I love about birding is that you can kind of shed all that and just be kind of earnestly enthusiastic about what you're doing in a way that it is super fun for other people to be around. I don't have a question there. I just, I'm curious if, you, if you've noticed the same thing, because I, I, I find that in birders all the time. It's like, you can just kind of let your guard down and be yourself in a way when you're birding, uh, when, in a way that you can't always in other parts of your life, I guess. Yeah, I think for me, especially, um, I, I have ADHD and a lot of the time I'm like distracted or mm-hmm. excited about a bird and I can really lean into that mm-hmm. um, when I'm leading a bird walk. Um, and the fact that I can talk about a bird mid-sentence and get freaked out about something and <laughs> folks lean into that is yeah. really, really freeing. And um, I think... I think it also, I, I also often will start my events by letting folks know that I will be distracted mid conversation, but like, let's come back to this conversation because that's important yeah. for me too. Yeah. Yeah. Anything that's outdoors in fall or spring is people are, I'm guilty of that being distracted <laughs> for sure. Um, so I, one of the things that I think is interesting about Feminist Bird Club is the way in which you sort of consciously do things in a way that it's slightly different than what sort of more traditional bird clubs have have done for decades and decades and decades. And to, with some success, it should be said. Um, what are some of the pitfalls that they might fall into or maybe that they're not seeing? And how do you consciously try to avoid those when you are working uh, with novice birders in particular? 
having transitioned from like traditional bird clubs into um, more of these spaces, I know what I try to do differently. I've noticed that bird walk leaders often will start an event by trying to prove their expertise and mm. participants love knowing that they're, that they're learning from someone who knows a lot. Um, and I'll hear a list of credentials and affiliations mm -hmm. and I just do the entire opposite. I'll start events by making my weaknesses abundantly clear. <laughs> like I said, I will mention that I, I have ADHD. Um, and, and I'll, um, it, it lightens the conversation. Like yeah, I'll idea. say something like, I'm going to get hyper-focused on that call note and we'll miss the eagle that just flew over. I'll miss the heron that's <laughs> just right there. So I need everyone's help to um, make this event work. I need you to point out, if you see something, hear something, let the rest of us know. Chances are we haven't yeah. seen it. And I think it really sets the tone for the collaborative nature of our walks and the fact that everyone has something to contribute. Um, and... Also, when I name that I'm disabled and state my access needs, for example, um, we had an event on a train line and I started by letting folks know that I have experienced a lot of auditory overload. And so if a train passes by, I would need to step away for a couple of minutes to take a break, for example. And so when we go around introducing ourselves, um, I'll say that, um, you know, names, pronouns, but also let us know if there are access needs that you would like the rest of us to know about. And it, it really makes it easier for folks to be open and ask for what they need from this yeah. space. Um, when, when they see that modeled in the leader. So I think we forget that. Um, and sometimes when you're leading an event, you want to share everything you know and you don't get a chance to step back and think, well, this chip note that I'm really, really excited about and how it's different from this other chip note maybe isn't the way other folks want to enjoy birds. <laughs> um, but when, when the conversation is lighter, um, I think in introductions, I'll hear about like what people are excited about and that really helps. Um, and I think just for beginner birders, especially occasionally I'll start an event by asking folks to share what birds they want to see. Mm -hmm. And that is also very intentional on my part because sometimes folks will say, I just want to see a blue bird. Like, is that a thing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes they'll say, well, I've heard that like the Eastern Meadowlarks have started showing up here. And you can get a sense of like how much ex experience they have without putting them on the spot and making mm -hmm. them feel like they're beginners. And that really feels um, relevant to me because I remember my first bird walk when I was a participant, I'd been birding for a while, but I grew up birding in India. So I was just not familiar with local birds around here, but I knew how to like find a bird. I knew what to look for, what field marks to look for. I knew the different families of birds. Um, I knew that I really suck at identifying sparrows. I knew those things about myself and there was really no space to uh, lean into that. And mm -hmm. so what folks would see at bird walks was the fact that I couldn't ID a chipping sparrow, mm -hmm. but not that I was um, already experienced in using binoculars, for example. So there's always that curve and you don't really realize how much people already know or want to know about. Um, and so I, I think that's something that I do pretty intentionally. Yeah, that's a great point. Those are tips that I think are relevant for anyone who's leading a bird walk for sure. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. And I, I just wanted to briefly add that um, before 
we even show up to a bird walk um, or a birding event, I think it's really important that we make really abundantly clear what that event is going to look like in our event descriptions yeah. when we're advertising our event. Mm-hmm. Okay. So are there bathrooms present? Are there accessible stalls within those bathrooms? Are there places to rest if necessary? What is the trail like? Is it paved? Is it, is it not paved? Is it a dirt path? Is it ADA accessible? These are all considerations that definitely we as, as leaders of events need to take in, into consideration. And mm-hmm. also uh, there it's information that people might need to have to know if an event is for them or not for them, yes, um, if for it's sure. going to be accessible for them or not. So yeah, I just wanted to briefly add that as well. Yeah, no, I, I've been on too many walks where you don't know exactly how long they're going to be or how long you're going to be in a car or where are you going or all that stuff. It's it's nice to know that so you can plan your day. It's just, it's just, it's just responsible to the people that exactly. you are, you're leading to, to have exactly. that information to give as much as you can up front. This feels really relevant to me as well. Um, I've gone out of my way to learn more about what 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 shows up for folks who have mobility impairments, for example. Mm-hmm. I think when we use terms like this trail is easy, it really right. like what puts the onus yeah. on the person to try to interpret that. Yep. Um, and I've been um, more intentional about noticing things like, is this slope really too hot, even if it looks paved? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I had an, it, I had a participant at an event that I led on Tuesday. It was actually to celebrate the release of this book. Oh, um, and we were talking about uh, the book. And one of the prompts in the book is actually, um, it talks about your personal access needs. It says, tell us about an event that met your personal access needs or did not meet it. Um, and I love the journal prompts in this book. Yeah, it great. really is. It makes you stop and think. Um, and as a part of this conversation, this participant said, you know, what really, really stood out for me about this event and the way that it met my access needs is the fact that the um, registration form asked about what accommodations I need to attend this event. And it felt so freeing to see that that was something every person who's registering needed to look at and stop think of and stop and think mm-hmm. about and it made sure that I didn't have to single myself out and identify myself as someone who's disabled or has some other needs um, because it was it was something that I knew that you were open to hearing mm-hmm. and a lot of the time in the past I've had the experience of having to advocate for um, my needs um, I think one of the first walks I went on um, I'd called and tried to ask about how difficult the trail would be or how long it would be. Um, and I was just told, you know, we'll take it as it comes. It's going to be pretty easy. Um, and that felt kind of unnerving. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, that, that's, that's a great segue into my next point. The book is, you know, it's really collaborative with the reader. The, the reader is asked to do a lot of these journaling prompts, these questions about how you approach birding. How do you hope people use the book and who do you hope you will reach with the book? Really good question. Um, Well, we hope to reach new and experienced birders or even just the bird curious who care about building a conscious community. Um, And we also hope to reach organizers or even yet to be organizers of events that are looking for tangible pathways to build more inclusive and accessible birding events or other kinds of outdoor experiences. Um, And the book itself, it really explores how birding is both deeply connected to issues of social and environmental justice Mm -hmm. and how it's a meaningful way to experience togetherness and visceral joy. Um, We discuss things like 
um, the basics of birding, right? We provide yeah. tips for new birders. Uh, we also advocate for ways that birding events can be more inclusive um, and give tangible examples of how Feminist Bird Club has done that in the past and what works for us. Um, we ask questions about what are our ethics and responsibilities that we have while birding or just being alive on the planet, especially, uh, but especially birding in community and then, and then birding on a planet that is actively in the midst of climate crisis and, and a biodiversity crisis. Um, and yeah, I, I think we want folks to engage with the work in a number of ways. We mm. wanted to we want it to feel like a safe landing place. Like for example, it starts off at the glossary, right? Um, that's not traditional. Uh, glossaries are typically found at the end of a book, mm -hmm. um, but we located our glossary at the very beginning because we want folks to arrive together with the at least similar understanding of some of the terms and concepts that are found in the pages throughout the book. Um, and then we have these journaling prompts that add this layer of meaningful reflection and that hopefully activate some of the written material um and yeah i hope that folks like do really spend some time with those journaling prompts um because molly and i molly adams my co-author and i really believe that the book is incomplete until folks fill out those journal prompts like we are co-creating the world yeah. that we want to see together that is a big part of the feminist bird club ethos and that's yeah. a part of this book too. And we also, we have some instructions in the book for how folks can submit those journal prompts to us on our website. Um, so you can go to feministbirdclub.org slash birding for a better world. And there's a form on there where you could fill it out or you could just take pictures of your responses if you're comfortable with that and post them on social media and like hashtag birding for a better world and at us at Feminist Bird Club. So yeah, we just, we wanted to feel collaborative. We want people to like immerse themselves into the work. Um, it's also extremely colorful it's full of life there are over 90 illustrations in the book it's we worked with 20 different artists we really just tried to bring in as many voices and perspectives and makers as possible into this work because like while molly and i co-wrote the book like it's not about us at all and it's it's um it like i said it's about creating this world together um a world that is full of possibility and that we hope one day meets everybody's needs um and yeah so i, I hope that answers your question and um <laughs> yeah and i just i again just cannot wait to read some of those journal prompt responses um and yeah look forward to seeing those roll in yeah that's really fun i love the idea of a project in, in in a book because birding is, if nothing else, sort of this ongoing project that we're all sort of taking part in and enjoying and uh, to try and make that you know, outward and share that with the people who have created this book, who created this organization. That's, uh, that's got to be very exciting. I am the biggest fan of the book there is. I did not write the book, but I will take the... I know you uh, were involved in editing it. And, uh, <laughs> Heavily involved in it. Yeah. I, 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 there you go. I think Sydney and Molly have done such a great job in really setting the tone, not only for um, how the Feminist Bird Club works, but also what we can expect from the world. I think a lot of the time we're settling for less. Mm -hmm. We don't realize how much of a voice we have. And I mm -hmm. think, especially through those journal prompts, it really shows that you don't need to... Um, know anything about birds or um, understand a lot about social justice going into it to be able to contribute to this conversation for there to be something we can learn from you. It, I think it speaks to anyone who who thinks there should be more 
to nature, to conservation, to social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I love that this book came out at this time because it's, it's just a really exciting time for books in, in the birding community. Oh, for sure. Do you think birding is an activity that sort of naturally aligns with these sort of larger social justice efforts? Because it feels like that's, a, that's as big a part of the book as the bird stuff. Yes, I think that I've spoken a little about this already, but every time we're able to include another person, accommodate someone else's access needs, let someone speak up about what it is that they need from us in order to feel like they can be their most authentic self. I think, I think that's a revolution itself. Um, I think it changes the way that our birding community shows up outside of events as well, because it, it makes organizers leave our events thinking, I should put a question about accommodations in, in my registration form, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the, the larger conversation about social justice efforts is something that for me personally, I think I just didn't realize how much power I had and how much my voice mattered. Locally, a lot of um, the conservation work I'm involved in is a part of the Association of Massachusetts Bird Clubs. And a lot of the time, our representatives will lobby or write write a letter or a petition for a local um, for a local body that is maybe trying to take away access to a space, or mm-hmm. um, if there's like some kind of uh, construction that's going to disrupt a conservation area. I think recently I've been really excited to be involved with a couple of projects because birds help me think about things in a way that I I didn't realize that I am so connected to the world around me especially to the land mm. and in the summer uh we had a lot of flooding this year um I'm on the Connecticut River I live right 200 feet from it and um with the Vermont and western Massachusetts really flooding a lot um through regions that are so personal to me through places where I know the birds intimately, I know which bird was nesting there before the flood washed it away. And that felt very personal. So I was so excited uh, to find that Senator Shaheen and um, Representative McGovern just introduced the Connecticut River Watershed Partnership Act. Um, it um, really sets the tone for formalizing partnerships with the government and with local bodies, not just like conservation organizations, but also people who recreate on the land, indigenous communities. And I've been really lucky to be able to advocate for that because I know how important it is for all of us to have a say Mm -hmm. in the future of like how we deal with resiliency in our communities because climate change is here and it's not going away. We're going to have another flood next year and the year after that. And I am really excited that this act is currently, it's, I think it just entered the house, but the Feminist Bird Club is a proud co-sponsor um, of this act. And I was also able to lead the Association of Massachusetts Bird Clubs to become um, an official co- co-sponsor. It, there's a huge coalition of folks that are behind this act, but it wouldn't have been something that was on my radar if I wasn't actively sitting with the grief of losing these birds, seeing these habitats change. We're still getting really 
unusual shorebirds in a particular spot that maybe wouldn't have them if the river hadn't flooded and brought in different kinds of aquatic life Mm -hmm. and um, insects. And so those are now really changing the way our habitats create space for birds. So I've been really excited about that. I I don't think we're going out of our way to talk about social justice. It's just that it comes up. And a lot of the time we don't want to think about the connections and it, it, it is really, really personal um, if, if you if you create space for it to be. I, I completely agree. I think, you know, people sometimes people complain that birding is poli- birding is too political. And I'm like, oh, the, the places that we care about are, are affected by political choices that people make. And I think it's important for us to be aware of that and, you know, make our voices heard on those sorts of things. I, I couldn't agree more with everything that Megadibia has said. Um, and I just think that they did an incredible job of emphasizing just how intrinsically linked issues of social and environmental justice are. And, and mm-hmm. yeah, I think that there's something for me about being outside with birds, um, with trees and water and wind that makes me feel a lot of hope for what there is left to save um, and for this possibility of a better future in which folks needs are met and where we can live in right relationship with the land. Um, And I just personally, like, I think that I really need to feel that expansiveness and the possibility that that expansiveness within like my heart and my body, what it it brings to me, if I'm going to move forward in a world that's increasingly not okay. Um, Just speaking from a a place of like, you know, personal need there. Um, Like birding helps me be okay in a world that is increasingly not okay. No, I completely agree. You you read about it in the book. You, you the one of the lines that really resonated with me is that you know birding can be an anecdote to hopelessness and despair. It's it's something that really uh, sits with me really well. Like I I get that kind of intuitively when I'm out birding. Not only is it sort of a way to get beyond yourself and kind of focus on other things, but you know there's just such a joy in watching birds and and being around them and and being aware of the amazing things that they're doing and how they are part of this larger environment that you're suddenly more aware of uh, as a birder. I, my own experiences bear that out. I'm sure that yours do as well. Absolutely. Um, Megadiba, do you want to add? Yeah. Do you want to add anything there? Yes. That is also one of my favorite lines in the yes, book. I'm no, really glad we agree on it. I personally am someone who's really, really familiar with that hopelessness and despair. Um, I have um, complex PTSD and I also experience chronic suicidality. So I know what it's like to be down in those lows and mm-hmm. birding is something that has really pulled me out of it in ways that I I didn't realize I was doing at, as, as it started happening. A lot of the time people will ask me to like sit with my anxiety and like ground myself. And I'm not someone who can do that. I cannot breathe in and out, but I can be present in the moment when I'm with the birds. Yeah. I can uh, notice things that are outside of my body and how difficult it feels to be in my body sometimes. Um, and I, I don't always feel safe around humans. I don't always know how to predict how they will b- behave, but it's not like that with the birds. Um, and I, I just feel safe when I'm outside. It's kind of crazy. A lot of the time people will say, don't seek out like isolated spots, but I like being alone because I notice more things when I'm outside. Um, and I, I will intentionally make space to go birding when I find like my thoughts are spiraling mm-hmm. or um, I'm having a rough time or having, I don't know, flashbacks or anything that's coming up. Um, and also just I have a hard time standing still just in general. 
uh, being neurodivergent, but not when I'm birding. One of my favorite ways to bird is actually to stand still. I call it like pretending to be a ticket, but I'll just like (laughs) slink into the side of a trail um, and just stand quietly for like hours, just letting nature happen around me. And that is so grounding. I I think the birds forget that you're there after a while. Yeah. um, And that makes you feel like you're a part of something bigger. You're a part of this ecosystem. They're doing their thing. They're feeding their young. They're, they're um, trying to find a mate. And I'm just, uh, I'm just a witness to all of that. And it, it, feels, it feels really sacred and special. Like even when, I, when I'm at a stakeout and a rare bird shows up, like I don't take that for granted. I think that that is special. And I like to stop and think I've been chosen. I could have dipped on this bird, but this bird showed up for me. Like there was a, a mega rarity around here a few years ago. There was a stage thrasher in the area. And um, a lot of folks were um, talking about how this bird was really skittish. And they um, were worried that we were stressing the bird out a lot. And when I went to look at it, I um, knew the general area and I was just like, walking around and all of a sudden this bird pops up and it was like five or six feet away from me and I completely froze I'm very good at just like stopping when I see a bird (laughs) but it was so close to me and it was just eating berries it it wasn't even like disturbed I need it didn't flush and it just sat there and shared space with me for I don't know five or ten minutes and you feel chosen you feel special Um, and I knew that I'm doing something right about the way I tread this earth and the way that I relate to the land. And um, there, there's something so incredibly hopeful about that, about knowing that some things are predictable, but other things are, you're, you you can't take that for granted. So yeah, that's what I was going to say. Gosh, Megadie, but that was such a beautiful story. And uh, thank you so much for sharing it. It was so, so lovely. Um, and I, I've honestly been thinking a lot recently about like the kinds of stories that we share and uh, I've been thinking a lot about how there are many many narratives out there that focus on like worst case scenarios right yeah. uh, of climate change of biodiversity loss um the doom and gloom of all of it, of all of it um th- those stories they lead me into a place of despair um for what we've already lost for yeah. how much we still have to lose and how little time it feels like we have left to remedy <laughs> these deadly ramifications of Feel industrialism yes <laughs> yes and like re- reckless consumption of the overdeveloped world and you know and with what i'm about to say i don't mean to minimize the very serious reality of climate chaos like i get it um but you know i i think that ultimately we need to have hopeful stories too like yeah. we need these kinds of narratives, like the one that was just told to help us stay with the difficulty of the task at ahead. And I just, yeah, there's this really amazing essay in The Guardian that I read recently by Rebecca Solnit that's called If You Win the Popular Imagination, You Change the Game, Why We Need New Stories on Climate. And I think it really articulates this point that I'm trying to make very, very well. And Solnit um, gets at this perfect context around like these amazing advancements that we've made in climate solutions that we never thought were possible even just Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. Like so much has changed for the better and like we can focus on those stories too. And Mm -hmm. I guess the point I'm trying to make also and tie it back to birding is that birding and birding in community, it helps me see 
and it helps me tell a different story. It helps me ward off feelings of despondency, of apathy, of like, there's nothing that I can do. I'm just one person. And like, you know, I'm, I, I'm not about putting, putting the responsibility or the onus on the individual by any means. Um, but I do know that our collective action does make a difference. And like, I see that in Birding and Community. I really do. And I see it in Feminist Bird Club and the amazing impact that it's had over the last several years since it started in 2016. I mean, right now the official count is over $100,000 raised for social and environmental justice initiatives. Um, but I know it's even more than that at this point. And uh, and I'm just so proud to be a part of an organization and to represent an organization like this one through this book. Um, and I'm just so grateful for all that birds have given me and continue to give me. And I hope that we can give that back to new birders, to people who are bird curious. And um, yeah, thank you so much for having us on the show, Nate. It was just such a pleasure to talk about these things and to get to share about all of it. Uh, the pleasure was mine. Uh, this, this is a good place as any to wrap this up, I suppose. The book is beautiful. It is Birding for a Better World. A Guide to Finding Joy and Community in Nature. It's by Molly Adams and my guest, Sydney Golden-Anderson. Mekwadipa Maiti was involved with this as well. And is also a, a person involved in the Feminist Bird Club, which is doing really amazing things, getting people into birds um, who might not have been into birds and before and, and, and doing it in a way that is you know just reaching a lot of different folks. And, and Lord knows we need all the people we mm -hmm. can get <laughs> into birding yeah. and nature uh, to, to make our voices as loud as possible for, uh, for all these good things that need to be need to be happening and, and these stories that we need to tell. So thank you thank so you. much for your time. Thank you so much for the book. And um, yeah, I look forward to seeing what Feminist Bird Club does does next. Thank you so much, thank Nate. You, Nate. Um, Nate. And for helping us get the word out about Absolutely. Like, yeah. Book. Everyone needs to, to read you. it. It's a, it's a very nice little book. Yeah. And Nate, one more thing that I just want to add briefly is that Megadipa was instrumental in making this book happen and bringing it into the world, making it a reality. There thoughts, wisdom, expertise that they shared throughout the book. There are multiple quotes where Megadipa can be found in the, <laughs> in the text directly. And then they also read early iterations of the work and provided feedback that really shaped the story that we told. And I'm so grateful for them. Um, Megadipa, thank you so, so much. Um, it's such a pleasure to your friend and to know you and to collaborate with you thank you it is an honor to have been a part of this book thank you sydney and molly you can find feminist bird club on the web we'll have a link in the show notes please check that out also to the book as well thanks again have a great day y'all thank you the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is, as always, to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, access to our webinars, opportunities to travel with us, and more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Frederick Tilly of Arley, Montana, John Rowan of Albany, New York, Sharon Richardson of Austin, Texas, John Falzone and family of Whitby, Ontario, Jay Messenger of Brimfield, Massachusetts, and Amanda Safer of Oakland, California, all of whom recently joined the ABA for the first time and noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. We really do appreciate your support. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Wayne Klockner, who suggests that those who find the first ABA area record of Larrids should receive the Gullitzer Prize. 
Technical production is by John Lowry, who suggests that the birder who discovers the first breeding record of neotropic cormorants in Quebec should probably get the Ballon de Corm. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Nice, who congratulate UK birders who traveled to the island of Scilly recently for what can only be described as the booby prize, by which I mean both brown and red-footed booby on the same lighthouse. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association, but on Blue Sky, we are at ABA Birds. I have unilaterally decided to give a YouTube movie featuring a soaring zone-tailed hawk set to the Scorpions classic, Rock You Like a Hurricane, the I'm TV Video Music Award. Questions, comments, come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird Like Tom, and we'll see you next week.